Thank you, Mike, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone around the world, and welcome to this ISACOS webinar on infection in total knee replacement. I'm joined by my co-chair, uh, Professor Sebastian Lustig from Lyon, France, and I'd like to introduce our distinguished panel, um, <clears throat> Dr. Dan Washer from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Dr. Sam Sedic from London, England, uh, Professor Philip Naray from Lyon, France, uh, Dr. Nico Budhiparama from Indonesia, and we'll be joined later by Dr. Andrew Price from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Uh, and with that, Sebastian, I'll hand over to you for the introduction and then looking forward to starting the cases. Thank you. Perfect. So when we're talking about uh, uh, infection, we're we, we going to discuss, you know, it's going to be case-based. So we're going to discuss several topics about, you know, diagnosis, about therapy. Uh, we know it's going to be crucial to try to identify the organism and that antibiotics alone will not heal the infection. So it's crucial to identify the risk factors. We're going to discuss that and to differenti differentiate two types of uh, infection. So it's going to be very interesting to see how we distinguish, you know, acute and chronic infection. Acute infection usually are described during the first 12 weeks after, you know, surgery, uh, and we're going to try to preserve the implants. And chronic infection is when uh, it's more than 12 weeks with more than three weeks of symptoms, and we're going to have to remove the implants. And we're going to discuss, you know, all these topics during the next 60 to 90 minutes regard with uh, several cases we prepared for our distinguished faculty. And I will hand over now to Miles for the first case. Miles, to you. Thank you, Sebastian. Um, <clears throat> our first case, and, and I, I want to make it clear to the audience that um, our panel have not seen these cases. They are getting them for the first time. So uh, it's an honest answer to a case they've just received. And hopefully they'll um, be able to enlighten us. So our case number one, is a 66-year-old male who suffers from diabetes and hypertension, so some comorbidities, BMI of 34 and HbA1c of 6.1. So his diabetic control is not terrible. He presents with an antalgic gait, a range of motion in both of his knees from 10 to 110 degrees with fixed virus deformities and medial tenderness. And so <clears throat> he's a patient that potentially has a risk of infection um, and I'm going to start by asking a panelist, Sam Usedek. Sam, what do you do to prevent infection in a patient like this? And I don't just mean what you do in the operating room. What do you do preoperatively? Um, uh, what do you do with skin prep uh, in the pre-admission area? Which antibiotics do you use? Do you change your draping? Um, what do you use in your pulse lavage? Uh, do you use betadine? How do you manage traffic in the operating room? All those. Uh, questions, please, Sam. How do you prevent infection? Good evening, Miles and Seb, and uh, thanks for the question. It's a good case. Um, so uh, there's a bunch of different factors that you've you've raised there in, in the preoperative phase. Then careful patient assessments required. I think you've touched on some of the risk factors. Uh, so diabetic control is important. Uh, HbA1c is, is is a marker that we can look at to try and estimate what some risk of infection may be. The literature on that's not particularly good. Uh, a value of seven and a half perhaps might be a cutoff for some surgeons. You might go as high as eight and a half for others, but certainly a high value. You'd look to try and improve control preoperatively. 
other risk factors well you know smoking we haven't talk, talked about you didn't mention that in your uh, in your questions but uh, certainly smoking is a risk factor whether that improves once you stop smoking or not it's a different question and literature again is moot on that um, hypertension uh, not necessarily a risk factor for infection but something you might want to think about particularly if we're talking about fairly prolonged surgery for this patient if you're uh, considering a, a simultaneous bilateral procedure which you might be um, intraoperative or, or as we go through into the uh, operative phase um, so uh, skin prep important uh, so um, I usually uh, use uh, uh, clippers and theaters to to remove uh, hair um, I use a chloroprep solution um, which contains alcohol as my skin prep. I give it time to dry so that it can work. Um, the uh, operative field is then isolated in a standard fashion with drapes. Um, you, you mentioned I think whether to change draping or not which I guess is a reference to whether this is a bilateral procedure or not. Um, if I'm doing bilateral surgery then I, um, I tend to not change the drapes but uh, I leave uh, the other leg, the second leg, covered and cut a hole in the uh, stereo in the stockinette, um, and then reapply some crawl prep with another um, iodine impregnated steri drape before uh, continuing. Uh, I also change all of the sets between one knee and the other just to reduce the chance of infection as well, so we don't reuse instruments. Um, antibiotics, uh, standardized prophylaxis for us is, is uh, kefuroxim, three doses, uh, 1.5, um, 30 minutes before induction um, and continued with two doses post-operatively. Um, if they're uh, penicillin allergic and we've got a nervous anaesthetist, uh, then we might move on to clindamycin, um, occasionally ticoplanin and gentamicin, uh, depending on the patient's profile. Um, were there any other factors you wanted me to touch on? Well, one of the... Um factors that sort of starting to become more common is the use of betadine uh, to soak either soak the joint at the end of the procedure or to add um, 30 mils of betadine or one of the uh, povidone iodine um, uh, solutions to your sluice for pulse lavage. Do you do that and what, what do you think of the evidence for that? Uh, I think the evidence is pretty weak on that to be honest. Um, I, I don't do it um, uh, and in our institution uh, we don't do it. Um, I know there's some weak evidence that, it, but the trouble is you need such an overpowered series to try and show any difference with a measure like that, that it's very difficult to show an effect. And you know, when you come down to it, that's one of the problems that we're probably gonna run into when we talk about infection across the board, that uh, it's, it's a relatively thankfully rare event, and therefore you need you know, hundreds of uh, thousands of patients before you can show the effect of such a small intervention. Sam, what about dressings and, and wound closure? Uh, so uh, wound closure, um, I've, I've standardized to using skin clips, uh, which I think are effective. Um, we close in layers. Uh, there's, uh, again, some very weak evidence that using a monofilament suture might reduce uh, infection. Um, but uh, uh, once again, those are small series we're talking about. Uh, sutures impregnated with antibiotics are another option. Uh, again, there's some very weak evidence that that might help, but uh, I don't think it's strong enough to base a, a change in practice on. Um, the only other thing that you mentioned, sorry, that I forgot to talk about was, was reduced flow through theatres. And, and personally, I think that is really important. And, and we do lock the doors uh, and we do stop non-essential staff from being in theatre as much as to stop the disruption to airflow as to the potential contamination from people sneezing or touching things that they shouldn't. Mike, we, we, we have a question from uh, with the, the Q&R uh, about um, pre-op antiseptic wash and shower for patients before they come to hospital. Is it standard for you, Sam? No, don't do that either. 
Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, of weak evidence supporting it, but um, it's not something that we do. Uh, I do pre-wash all of my patients in theatre, uh, but I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't ask them to do it for me. Just, just out of interest, Sam, with respect to locking the doors, I tried yeah. to do that in my hospital and the farm and stopped me because uh, <laughs> there's no egress. So it's, it's not quite as simple as you might think. Well, look, that's, that's comprehensive, Sam, and thanks very much. We'll, we'll move on a little bit with, with this patient. Uh, in January of this year, he had a pressed fit total knee, was given two grams of kefazolin IV and discharged at 24 hours. Um, uh, at two weeks post-op, he was progressing well. His wound healed, staples were removed. At one month, he had some wound dehiscence and his general practitioner started him on some oral antibiotics with Keflex and referred back to his orthopedic surgeon um, where a superficial wound infection was diagnosed. Um, his inflammatory markers were quite satisfactory with a CRP of 0.8. A superficial wound debridement was performed, a vac was placed, and he grew enterobacter. He was given uh, oral keflex and uh, trimethoprim and a sulfur. Um, <clears throat> and I'm having trouble, there we go. At seven weeks post-op, he was feeling well. And then a little later, at uh, 15 weeks post-op, a pimple appeared two days before uh, and there was increased pain, but he was afebrile. Um, what will we do uh, at this stage and what additional information would you like? And I'm now gonna hand that over to Philippe Naray. Where would you go from here, Philippe? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, the patient, does, what does the, the patient complain after 15 weeks exactly? He has some pain? He has some pain, um, which is more than he had. His pain is worse uh, and he has a pimple that's appeared. And if I just go back, I think I can show you that pimple. Yeah, okay. So <clears throat> I uh, first, uh, doing the surgery, just I, I wanted to add, I would use uh, some antibiotics in the cement and uh, also I, I would use a special uh, uh, surgical bracing like uh, the Convatec one uh, uh, after the surgery in order to avoid to have too many bracing after the surgery. But at this stage, it's uh, not an uh, easy situation because of course he had this uh, wound dehiscence so just uh, after the surgery. Usually when I have some uh, skin problem, I ask to the plastic surgeon to give me an opinion because it's not uh, always we can uh, obtain a good uh, healing of the skin, uh, particularly in diabetes. So I think I would be a little bit more aggressive in terms of uh, 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 second opinion from a plastic uh, surgeon at the beginning. And also sometimes when uh, we need to, to put some uh, antibiotics and uh, we uh, have also uh, some uh, uh, tests for some microorganism, I think it brings some blue. But at this stage, it's not easy to decide what to do with this, uh, with this pain. I would do probably some uh, blood tests, even if they are not always positive. I think this is a good information. I would check if there is uh, any uh, uh, effusion in the knee joint in order to uh, know uh, if there is uh, a possibility to uh, aspirate uh, the, the joint. And uh, I... Uh, I would also ask the patient to uh, record regularly the temperature if he has a, a lot of pain. And uh, uh, of course, it's, uh, it seems to be a severe pain, but we don't know if he has pain during the, the night 
if he has uh, some uh, inflammatory pain and uh, what kind of uh, medication is he taking and if the medication controls the pain. Um, so he did have an aspiration of his knee and he had some, uh, some uh, we might advance it one more if you don't mind, thanks Mike. He had his knee aspirated and you can see what, what came out um, uh, looking at the syringes um, and there were 96,440 white cells uh, in, in the aspirate. So it's highly inflammatory fluid and 88% of them were polymorphs. Um, his bloods show an ESR of 100 and a CRP of 66 and uh, cultures are positive for the same organism, the enterobacter that he grew um, at the time of his um, wound infection early on. So where, and it just advanced again, thanks Mike, where do we go from here? Uh, and to that, I'm gonna pick on you, Nico, um, if you don't mind unmuting your mic and telling us what you would do at this point in stage. And um, one of the questions that's come through is the issue of whether it's an acute or a chronic infection and whether or not we should be uh, considering it chronic and dealing with it in that manner. So Nico, your care, please. Yeah, if you look at here, I think number one is that um, you have to differentiate whether it is a, super, a superficial wounds or a deep infections. As you can see here, that the doctor start to do the, the bleed amount. And after that, um, if you look at the, uh, the culture, um, it is an uh, enterobacter cloacate. Um, it is not common in Asia, maybe it's more in, 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 in Europe. So. And if I'm not mistaken, this kind of uh, um, uh, box, the cloquet, it is an, um, resistance, uh, resistance for a um, uh, cephalosporin, um, I think, yes, well, for in, uh, generation one. So, but it has been given. So that is my point, number one point. And can I go further? But then it developed the pimples. If the pimple ready, I think it is uh, a pimple shows that is maybe that is already in the PGI, a deep infections. So uh, can I go further? No further? No, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, this is already aspirated and it shows that it is a uh, um, uh, PGI. So by this, I would like to do an uh, 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 two, two states uh, revisions, Miles. Okay. Th thank you, Nico. Um, would everyone else on the panel agree that this is a chronic infection and that it's a two-stage reimplantation? I don't don't hear any any uh, anything different. Can we just move forward there, Mike? Again, I'm still having trouble moving the slides. There we go. Uh, so the following day, he had removal of the implants and, and uh, um, uh, irrigation debridement with an articulating space for antibiotics to man a pit line and he had IV antibiotics. Uh, now, Dan, I'm going to turn over to you at this stage. Uh, you did the two stage. Um, uh, just tell us, take us through this patient and, and, and talk to us about um, <clears throat> when you choose to use a two-stage and when you choose to use a one-stage uh, for infection. 
and when is a dare appropriate? Yeah, so in short, we use dare with the very acute uh, post-operative infections. Again, this patient was over three months out, uh, and he was one of my partner's patients who had done the superficial debridement, and I think he was probably seated at that point, and uh, he might have been a, a salvageable with a dare uh, at the initial wound complication, but unfortunately that wasn't performed. Uh, when I, my partner was out of town when this guy came back, uh, he was floridly infected. Um, again, it had been 15 weeks post-op, uh, had had symptoms for uh, some time, and my decision was to get everything out of there uh, and do a two-stage revision. In America, there aren't a lot of people that do one-stage uh, revisions. Uh, certainly, the literature uh, seems to say that the success rate is equal, but I think the the people that are doing one stages are picking the easier ones or the better prognostic ones, which may skew the results a little bit. Um, but uh, in our hands, we almost always do two-stage revisions uh, with an articulating spacer. And as you can see on the x-rays on this patient, uh, what we tend to do is use an old uh, femoral component uh, and then do an all-polyethylene uh, tibial component uh, as our articulating spacer uh, with a lot of... Uh, cement and the antibiotics and we do kind of a, a sloppy cement job so that when we come back for the second stage it's not too hard to remove it and don't have much bone loss. And, and Dan, um, your opinion on the, the difference in the morbidity between one and two stage revisions and, and the cost? Well certainly the cost is higher with a uh, two stage revision. Uh, there may be a little bit more morbidity um, but again we, we have a lot of patients, and this is one of them, who come from very remote areas uh, where it's very difficult to get uh, good antibiotic management, uh, and we just feel much more comfortable doing two-stage revisions uh, pretty much routinely in our practice. Okay. Well, I think uh, I'll hand over now to you. I've, I can see Nico is, is a question there. Uh, Nico? Yeah, Miles. Dan, I'm, I'm, the last, I mean, since 2019, the United States, now it's becoming more popular to have this functional articular spacer with uh, all poly. So that was my question now. In, well, in Europe, we do an, uh, one state's uh, revisions. So what do you think of this? Why do you put an all poly instead of just, uh, just like in Europe, we do an, uh, one state's revisions? Because most of the patients, if you look at the, the latest uh, uh, publications, that the patient, they said, then, then come back for the re-implantations. Uh, re yeah, again, in our hands, we've had better success with the two-stage revision. It's kind of what we've done. We're certainly paying attention to the European experience with the one-stage revisions. Uh, and there may come a time where in selected patients, uh, we do one-stage revisions. As you mentioned before, Enterobacter is a bad bug, uh, and I'm not sure most people would do one-stage revisions uh, with an Enterobacter infection uh, like this. I don't know. Would anybody do one-stage revision in this case? Well, well, I, I would certainly do a two-stage revision in this case, uh, Dan, uh, without much doubt. It's been present for 15 uh, weeks. But we are going to um, go through in the next case, next couple of cases the issue of um, dare versus one stage versus two stage. So let me let me turn it over now to you, Sebastian. 
for case number two. Yeah, thanks, Mice. So, yep, that's it. So that's that case number two is about a gentleman, 71 year old, uh, active guy in walking, gardening. He's got uh, HTO on the left knee in 2003, then a total knee in 2015, that's for the left knee. He had also a right total knee in 2016. So he has two total knees, but this, this gentleman has a very severe medical condition. He's got cardiac issues, uh, pacemaker, anti anticoagulation drug, diabetes, and he had some ischemic cerebrovascular accident. Let's talk about the left knee. Uh, it's been okay for three years, but then it's been really painful for the last three months. No history of trauma or injection. Now he has pain day and night, exacerbated with white bearing. He's limping, falls down, and you really cannot stay in that situation. You can see the x-ray here. So his BMI is okay. He, remember, he has a history of HTO, so he has two scars, one anterior, one lateral. The skin here is very fragile and thin. He's got swelling. The knee is warm and hyperalgesic. Range of motion is not too bad, 105 degrees of flexion. He's got no laxity, and the extensor mechanism is okay. So the first question is for Sam. Sam, you, you have the history of this gentleman, you know, with his left knee, you know, in a, he, also, he also has a total knee on the right knee, but it, with no symptoms. And the question is, do you need additional examination? You have several options here. Lab tests, joint aspiration of the left knee, joint aspiration of both knees, or would you do an arthroscopy to get some samples and biopsies or other IDs? Uh, thanks, Seb. So, um, interesting case. And, and poor chap. Um, so de definitely some further uh, um, examinations are required. Uh, so physical examination, he's got an effusion in the left knee, but the right knee is dry. The right knee is asymptomatic with the full range of motion. Uh, the, the left knee is, is, is painful and is stiff, from what I gather. Um, so uh, I would certainly do uh, a blood tests, uh, an ESR and a CRP. Uh, I would uh, schedule him for a joint aspiration, which uh, I tend to do in the operating theatre on my next list. Um, rather than doing it in the clinic. Uh, and we would get a white count on that fluid as well as uh, microscopy and culture. Um, and I would be guided by that. But, you know, look, I, I've, this to me looks and smells like an infection. So um, I'm going to want to be relatively uh, aggr aggressive in my treatment of it. Uh, and even if the aspiration comes back as negative, I'd probably get further biopsies in order to confirm a bug before proceeding with the procedure. And the whole time, of course, you need to just have at the back of your mind that this is a frail chap. You don't want to leave the bugs in his knee for too long. And you certainly want to be careful that he doesn't develop sepsis as a result of this probable uh, prosthetic joint infection. Freight only the left knee, not the right one? Uh, if the right knee doesn't have an effusion, I, I wouldn't go aspirating it, is the truth of it. I, I don't know if others would, but I wouldn't. Other exam from the, from the faculty? Uh, yes. Philip, oh, yeah, Philip. Yes, I would, uh, I would uh, try to check if there is a, a reason for a general infection too, because this patient was doing very well for three years, if I understood correctly, and uh, now suddenly he developed some pain on the, on the left knee, and uh, perhaps there is a reason, some uh, 
some uh, uh, door where the, the microorganism can come from. For example, the teeth or the, the colic problem or renal problem. So I, I would also uh, try to have a more global approach to try to understand why we get infected, probably infected. Okay, Nico? Yeah, this, so this, I think in a bilateral knee that you might need to do a blood culture as well. If you, you know, sometimes it can be bacteremia is what uh, Philip already mentioned. So that is a good point that we have to do. And then the question now is, when do you aspirate also the, the, the other uh, knee, the right knee? It's based on uh, what Sam said, it's usually uh, based on the uh, uh, physical examinations. If there's suspicion, then you do it and aspirations, right? Okay. I, I think that uh, if the patient has hip replacement, we will not uh, do an aspiration of the hip replacement if there is no symptom. So uh, it's an interesting question, but uh, I agree with some. If there is no uh, symptom, there is no reason to aspirate. Yep. Okay. So we, we all agree that we need lab tests, aspiration for sure, the left knee. Uh, and that at that stage, if uh, we, we get information from the aspiration, we don't need to go for a scope uh, unless we don't have the, the answer. Uh, so this, these are the, you can see the, the numbers. ESR is 35, CRP 48, John aspiration, topid color, leukocytes 3,500 with uh, more than 90% of uh, polynuclear neutrophile, and after three days, uh, you get staph AP resistant to methicillin and sensitive to rifampin. Regarding uh, the, the synchronous potential, you know, in infection, uh, just to mention this paper, uh, very large, you know, data, 644 patients with an infection of one joint and an arthroplasty is in at least one other joint. And what they found, and it was quite interesting in that the incidence of synchronous Born, uh, prosthetic joint infection was 4%, but then in 50% of them, it was asymptomatic. So which means that even if the northern knee is asymptomatic, could be infected, uh, and they, they managed to you know, find some risk factors. And you, as you mentioned, Nico and Philippe and Sam also, clinical suspicion you know, is the, the main factor. But also if you get patients with immune therapy or you know, neoplasia or which are fragile, might be relevant to aspirate the other knee, but the, the main criteria is the clinical suspicion. So that's completely correct. Then we mentioned, you know, uh, aspiration, blood culture, but regarding imaging, which kind of other imaging would you usually use for this specific case? And I will ask this question to Philippe. Uh, I, I will ask for a complete radiological checkup. But the, I'm not so sure the long leg films are really uh, interesting at this uh, stage. Uh, we will focus mainly on the knee. Uh, of course, we can need a, a long leg films if we consider to reoperate the patient and uh, to, uh, to, uh, to remove the implant. So this is different. But uh, in terms of uh, diagnosis, I don't need that. Uh, if I want to change the, the, the prosthesis also, it could be interesting to have a uh, a CT scan in order to check the rotation, but if there is no clinical problem and so on, probably it's not absolutely necessary to have a CT scan. The bone scan is something we use uh, frequently in uh, France and uh, in Europe, and the specialists of the infection uh, like it, but uh, I'm not so sure, and uh, probably Dan can confirm that this is so popular in the, in, uh, the US. 
And uh, I am not certain there is a need also for any MRI and with a special, uh, 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 special software in this uh, situation. So I think that there is a, probably a simple uh, X-ray and a, a bone scan I would obtain the, the image I need. Other option from the faculty? Yeah, uh, Zap. Uh, Nico, then Dan, yep. Uh, I think a CT scan might be helpful to assess the bone loss and uh, whether it's the implant, implant positioning. And um, um, I would like also to do some uh, stress X-ray to, to look at the, 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 to assess the laxity. Good point, Dan? Yeah, for me, when you draw pure pus out of the knee joint, uh, I'm not sure additional imaging is that helpful for me, particularly when I'm planning a two-stage in somebody with a chronic infection. Um, you know, we'll deal with the bone loss and the uh, ligament problems uh, down the road when we do the second stage. That's because you go for two-stage. <laughs> So let's let let's keep going. You know, so these these are the different options. We 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 you know we discussed that regarding the the X-rays, uh, stress X-rays for the laxity, the bone scan, and as Philippe said, it, it's definitely not standard in uh, you know most part of the world. Uh, and the CT scan could be interesting for a bone loss um, assessment. So now you you have the the full picture. And then what, what do you do with this patient? You know, would, well, how would you consider this case? He's very fragile, you know, medical history is uh, a high-risk patient. He uh, definitely got, you know, a, a chronic, you know, at least seems to be like a chronic infection of his left knee. Uh, and his other options that uh, I would like you to consider. And I will ask to Dan, what, what would be your option, even if you already answered a little bit to that question? Yeah, again, we tend to be uh, very uh, set on two-stage uh, um, revisions in our institution. Um, he's loose. He's, you know, chronically infected. Um, I think for sure uh, one's always a good option, but uh, since we're the referral center, they tend to get sent to us rather than the other way around. Uh, <laughs> two, three, and four I don't think are appropriate here. Uh, again, I think one-stage revision is certainly a viable option here. Um, depending on the organism you culture out. Um, but again, you really need to have an identified uh, organism if you're going to do a one-stage uh, exchange, I think. Yeah, we, we all agree that Dan, there is Dan, not indicated uh, here. Yeah, Mike? Sebastian, can I just cut in for a sec? Because there's quite a few questions coming through on the sure. uh, Q&A with respect to uh, mobile spaces. Um, and, and one of the questions is, whether or not the mobile spacer can be used as a definitive treatment of this. In other words, um, to, to take the implant out and put in a mobile spacer that would hopefully do the job for the patient forever, particularly in a patient like this. So, so perhaps Dan, because you're a two-stager, maybe you could answer that question. For, um, yeah, yeah, so what I will say is that when we do uh, the mobile spacer and the infection is cleared, Sometimes it's a long discussion to convince the patient to come back uh, to have the revision uh, put back in. Um, and again, it, it, to me, if this is a less healthy patient, it's not unreasonable, uh, again, to try to decrease morbidity and do a single stage uh, in this patient. Sam? 
I'm just going to play devil's advocate a little bit, if I may. Um, you said straight off the bat that this isn't suitable for a dare. Uh, now, this is a frail gentleman. The, the, the history of infection is actually quite short, isn't it? I thought from the history. Uh, uh, three, uh, yeah, I, I mean, he, he's got pain for three months. He's got pain for three months. Uh, I'm not sure that his implants are necessarily loose, and you can judge that clinically when you actually open the knee up. He's got a lot of pus in there. He's got a poor cardiac function. And actually, perhaps doing a very small procedure with a staph epi that's known to have around a 50% clearance rate from Adair, um, with uh, using a, a, an antibiotic that might penetrate a biofilm, might, might actually be what this chap needs to get him better and, and not expose him to the extra risks of certainly having staged surgery, two big operations. So uh, I, I don't know, just, just a thought. No, no, it makes sense. You know, we have to consider the medical condition as a key factor. Nico? Yeah, I, I have another thought, Sam. If you look at the box, can you, can you go back to the slide? Uh, that? Sure, sure. Um, this is a methicillin resistance, which is for the there. It's a poor outcome. Can you, yeah, yeah. Resistant methicillin. So I think by this, I'm, I'm, I'm not agree with, uh, with the there because uh, uh, they, uh, the outcome is not that good because it's a resistant methicillin, one of the box. So, so that's true for a staph aureus. I don't know that it's necessarily true for a staph epi. Uh, you know, we'd have to have a discussion with a microbiologist about that, I think. And so what, what about the, the one stage in, in that case? Because you, you, you don't want to consider two surgeries and, and we know that the, the bugs is not so easy to treat. Um, some thoughts? Oh, you hate it? You hate the idea? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think this is interesting to discuss this because of course, we, we, we can be uh, seduced by the fact to do only one stage. But if the one stage fails, it will be a disaster, you understand? So there is pro and cons. Uh, uh, and I, I would say probably I would be more conservative like uh, Dan Washer because uh, I would be afraid to fail because for sure if uh, we fail with the one stage, it, it will lead to, to, to big uh, general complications. Good point. Um, Sebastian, there are just a few more Q and A's coming uh, in, and I'm having sure, trouble. Sure, keeping, sure. I'm having trouble keeping up with them. Um, several of them are on dare, and and questions about what is the likelihood of um, a two stage being successful if a, if a dare fails. Um, and and sec the second question um, is. When should you dare and when should you um, go ahead and remove the implants either with a one or a two stage? So perhaps we could put that to, uh, to the panel. Sam, you were a, a dare man. What do you know about the chance of dare's uh, failure then resulting in success or otherwise of a two or one stage? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's actually probably the major downside of a dare when it fails. Uh, having said that, you've probably selected out the infections that are easier to treat by that stage. So it's the more difficult to treat infections that may then go on to get treated by a two stage and therefore the failure rate may be greater. So there may be a numbers game there that we're not quite uh, grasping. Uh, so I don't think that the, the association is necessarily true about failed dare and uh, um, um, causing the, the worse outcome from two stage. Look, typically we're talking about acute infections with easy to treat bugs with well-fixed implants. And if, if we know that if we catch those infections early, uh, then we can preserve the implants that are well-fixed. 
um, and that has a, a reasonably good chance of, of success with the lowest morbidity to the patient. And so that's the attractiveness. That's not now we're talking about a dare. We're not talking about, you know, washing the knee out. We're not talking about arthroscopic surgery. We're talking about a proper debridement of the knee and all the surrounding tissues and, and an exchange of the mobile parts, changeable parts of the joint replacement. So it, it is an extensive procedure. It does need long term antibiotics. We usually uh, combine it with, as I said, a, um, a, a, an antibiotic that's going to penetrate biofilm. Um, and so it, it does have a, a reasonable success rate. Yeah, Simon Young did look at this on the New Zealand Registry, trying to work out whether or not DARE was associated with a greater failure rate. And I think in the New Zealand Registry, their data was that it wasn't associated with a greater failure rate if you then failed the DARE and then went on to a, uh, a one or a two stage uh, revision series. Sebastian, back to you. <clears throat> Yeah, that was great, great discussion, by the way. And uh, just to summarize what we said, you know, regarding the different options, we said that there, you know, in, if the TBI is loose and it's a chronic infection, even if the, the guy is at risk, probably not, you know, a high successful rate. And then we have to discuss one stage versus two stage uh, regarding different factors we, we mentioned. So the, the, you know, international, you know, consensus meeting recently tried to, you know, um, document the advantages of one stage. We, we discussed that, decrease the surgical mobility, earlier functional return for sure. And, you know, the potential indication, you know, so uh, if there, you have a non-immunocompromised host, no systemic sepsis, minimal bone loss of tissue defects, the microbiology is in favor, so it, it, it's not a, a high resistant organism. You have you manage to isolate the pathogenic organism preoperatively, and you know the sensitivity of the bacterial treatments. And there was a high consensus that in this case, one stage could be, you know, a good option. And on the other hand, the contraindication are, of course, you know, that if if you have severe, you know, severe damage of soft tissues, if you don't know the bugs, if you uh, have no proper bone stock, and or if you have a complex, you know, sinus tract, all these are potential contraindications. But then the question is, how do you manage antibiotic therapy? You go for, you know, uh, uh, one stage uh, uh, or two stage, but how do you do with the antibiotics? Uh, pre-op, do you use effective antibiotic pre-op? Do you do just standard prophylaxis? Or uh, do, do you do nothing until the samples are collected? And also post-op, do you do six weeks? Do you do 12 weeks, then oral? Or do you do, you do lifelong oral suppression? Uh, and I would end over to Nico for this one. Thank you. Thank, thank you, sir. Let's, um, let's say we go for one stage, so it's, it's clear yeah. enough. Pre-op is like given a prophylactic antibiotic, that is to, uh, to avoid uh, super infections. And after that, uh, post-op, uh, it has to be multidisciplinary decision. Usually, I uh, took a two, two weeks for IV and then... Uh, Total uh, oral for about uh, another 10, 10 weeks. So totally it's about 12 weeks. So that, that's, yeah, that's, that's exactly what the recommendation. So we, I think we, we agree on that, that uh, we, we should, you know, avoid super infections, so standard prophylactic, and then the multidisciplinary decision will make, make the decision on the antibiotics, but usually it's a, it's a 12 weeks total starting IV and then oral. And uh, suppressive antibiotics that in a very specific case, like Sam just mentioned, and only if you have uh, active you know, antibiotics on biofilm, of course. I have a question for you, uh, Sebastian. Sure. Uh, uh, you say this is a metier, 
microorganism. Does it change anything in, uh, in the management, the fact that uh, this uh, microorganism is resistant to the methicillin and the, would you? No, you're right. It's, 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 yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's in favor of two stage. It's in favor of two stage if we rely on the criteria. But that's a balance between, you know, the, the risk of the patient, especially the skin. Will he be able to handle two surgeries or not? And then the, the bugs and the potential failure of one stage. That, that's, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That's the, where the discussion and where the decision is not, is not easy and where uh, multidisciplinary discussion and decision is, is crucial. So not, not telling this is you know, right or wrong, the decision we took, but we went for one stage. The, the reason were you know, comorbidities and the fact that we know the organism. We went for the uh, antibiotherapy you know, uh, discussed with the ID specialist. Uh, and and you know, eventually it's been successful for three years now. So we've been uh, maybe lucky, but that, that discussion between one stage and two stage was really meaningful you know, on this. You know, a gentleman with all these medical condition. I think that's important to have the whole picture when we make the decision and not only to consider the knee and as we've been discussing on this case. Uh, and then, you know, we, we just a couple of, uh, you know, reference one excellent from uh, Sam, you know, published in the, in the BGG about, you know, uh, uh, the potential, you know, uh, outcome of one stage. And what is very important is to select the right patient. And I'm sure Sam will agree on that. And that common sense uh, is, as always, in surgery crucial when we make the decision. And I will hand over to Mice for the next case. Thank you, Sebastian. Look, just before I, I go on to that, I'm, I'm really struggling to keep up with the Q&As, but there's several questions about um, spaces and whether it's sensible to leave a spacer in forever. Uh, and uh, there's an, an, uh, and and I, I suspect, as you say, Sebastian, try and tell, try and c convince a happy patient um, that you want to take that spacer out and put another one in. Um, look, there, there's another question about um, what you do with the patella in the situation of a revision, and often it's the it's the one with the poorest quality bone stock. So, uh, in a setting where you're going to do a two stage, do you always t remove the patella component? Uh, or do you sometimes leave it in, in a two stage? And perhaps I'll ask your opinion and, and maybe the panel before we get on to this third case. I, 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 would, I would not consider letting the, the patella in. I, I would uh, remove it for two stage and then see how I can deal with the, the bone stock. Uh, I would not let the implant in. And, and the, the panel, everyone agrees with I, that? I, I agree with that because you cannot leave the, all the poly in, inside there. So I, I agree with that. We have to remove everything. Anyone yeah. leave the patella in? Well, Miles, I want to say we remove everything, and then if the patella is too thin when you come back, you can do a goal wing or just leave it unresurfaced, and it uh, it generally does pretty well. Okay, Sam. I I don't necessarily take the patella out. I, I, the fear of getting shouted down. Uh, I'm very sorry about that. Um, but uh, it particularly uh, if it's well fixed uh, and there's not much bone stock left on the patella, I tend to leave it alone. I've never seen that come back and get me, but um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be educated if someone's yeah. got evidence to the contrary. Well, I'm, I'm in the same camp as you, Sam. And I mean, the other interesting thing about the patella is that if you've got a particular brand of implant in uh, and you, you decide to use a different one for the revision, do you need to change over the patella to a different... Um, uh, to, to the, the brand of implant that you're putting in. And I think the answer that's possibly it doesn't make that much difference. 
but we're getting off track and I've got to move on to case three. Um, but um, this is a 72-year-old uh, female who'd had a total knee uh, 12 months ago and the knee was always painful with a poor range of motion, restricted walking, and she had a wound discharge uh, and her surgeon referred her to a dermatologist uh, to look at this skin lesion. Um, and I don't know a lot about dermatology, but I think I could make a diagnosis of that skin lesion. Um, so I think if I've got it right, it might be, Sam, your turn to comment on this patient. Uh, what's the diagnosis and what are the options? It's, it's a total knee with a thymus. Okay, so, uh, you know, she, she's got a diagn diagnostic criterion of, of an infection, which is a, a draining sinus over the uh, replaced joint. So uh, the diagnosis is of a prosthetic joint infection. Uh, we're still going to run through all the same things we would normally. So we'd get blood tests, we'd get samples. Uh, so a, a swab of the sinus fluid is not particularly useful in showing us what the organism is. You'll often get uh, polymicrobial uh, uh, answers from that. But an aspirate of the joint, uh, assuming some of the fluid isn't draining out, would again be useful. Uh, we get, so we get our samples done, we assess the patient, we assess the joint, we assess the bone, uh, and we make a plan. I'm glad you raised the, the, the question about aspirate because two of the Q&As are, where do you do the aspirate? Um, do you always take the patient to the operating room to do the aspirate? And do you make a little incision to do the aspirate or do you just put a needle into the joint? They're, they're Q&A questions. Sam, I'll, I'll give those to you as well. Yeah, so uh, I tend to always do it in the operating theatre. Um, I don't trust my clinic room to be uh, clean or sterile enough to uh, violate a prosthetic joint. So as I said previously, we tend to do it first on an operating list uh, and that might raise some eyebrows and then we go and do some more operations afterwards. But, uh, you know, everything's clean very nicely before the first patient comes in. Um, we, we tend to aspirate. If it's a dry aspirate, then under local anaesthetic in theatre, I might make a little incision over the superpatellar pouch and take a synovial sample. Uh, but that's about the only time I'll do that. Um, otherwise, usually you can get some fluid out so via a, a suprolateral approach. Okie doke, thank you. Um, so we, uh, we took it to the operating theatre. Now, uh, this was uh, in about the year 2003, and uh, that's what she had done. This is my patient. Um, I'm, she was referred to me for a second opinion. Uh, we involved plastic surgery, and that's what they did. Um, uh, Dan, can I ask you what you would do in the setting uh, of that skin lesion with a little ulcer like that, uh, which uh, my plastic surgeon put a skin graft on? Yeah, so I think, uh, first of all, you get plastic surgery involved, but you, you need to have a plastic surgeon that's used to dealing with some of these difficult issues. Um, certainly, you have to, I think, be prepared to swing some sort of... Uh, a uh, muscle flap like a gastroc flap uh, in order to get good coverage there uh, once you do your definitive procedure. Uh, and I think, you know, it'd be reasonable to uh, use the wound vac and kind of treat it, uh, uh, you know, partially treat it. But when you come back to do your revision surgery and put your final implants in, I think you need to be uh, prepared to, to swing some sort of muscle flap uh, to cover that area because otherwise I think the risk of wound breakdown is pretty high. And um, Nico, can I ask, uh, there are again lots of questions coming through about antibiotic holidays and, and how long this patient should stay on antibiotics. What do you do Nico and what makes you decide that it's time now to do the second stage? Yeah, it is a very good uh, question. Uh, 
miles because nowadays if you look at the the latest the consensus 2018 um that says that there is you know when you talk about the drug holidays how long and how can and who decide that the the cutoff is uh, uh two weeks you understand so don't nowadays uh, people is not um doing that uh, anymore but i have a question to dan actually um um if you look at the flat reconstruction um my question is the, the most important thing is the timing when do you have to do it during the expectations or uh, you wait until the uh, uh, after the infection is uh, uh, come down yeah i think that depends on how big the the skin and soft tissue defect is certainly if it's really bad with the infection then you might need to swing your flap early and then have your plastic surgeon assist you on the exposure uh, so you don't devascularize your flap when you go back in to put in your final components. Um, but sometimes, again, you can treat it with just local wound care and then do your flap when you do your uh, final revision. But uh, uh, Dan, do you consider the flap is part of the treatment of the infection because it brings some uh, blood and some uh, antibiotics to the, to the, to the uh, wound? and it allows the antibiotics to reach this zone. I think there's some benefit of that, but I think the major thing the flap does is prevent recurrence from uh, subsequent wound breakdown. Um, Philippe, can I ask you uh, your um, regime for antibiotics and the decision uh, that the, you are now, the patient's now ready for that second stage? Um, uh, do you involve ID, infectious diseases, um, and, and do you offer the patient or do you give the patients an antibiotic holiday? No, it's, uh, it, it, it really depends the place uh, where you are. The, the, the problem is in some place there is no very good specialist for infection and uh, we are not all prepared to, 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 to play with the antibiotics. But the idea is to have a specialist of infection or to ask them their opinion and uh, uh, I, I would for sure uh, 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 consider what they recommend in terms of uh, antibiotics, and uh, I, uh, I I would not be afraid to give them uh, uh, for too long time, and uh, particularly in this uh, situation. So, what I, I would do is I, I I would ask them to adapt the antibiotics. I will uh, control the different blood tests before to reoperate the patient and uh, uh, to, to to continue. Thank you. Miles, we, we, we have a specific question of, uh, in case of sinus tract, uh, like in your case, do, do, do the panel, do the faculty think it's mandatory to aspirate the joints before going uh, in surgery in this case? Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to answer that. I think it's just so much easier if you know the organism. Um, it, um, it, it's, so in other words, aspirate the knee and the SAM correctly says you will not get the organism from uh, the swab, you'll get polymicrobial answer there. So I think aspiration beforehand is appropriate. Um, just back to the issue of spaces because there's been so many questions. This was a 2003 operation where you can see that's what we sort of colloquially call a hamburger patty. I would not use that now. Um, this is a very old case. Uh, I would now uh, use uh, articulating spaces. Um, and our, our patient, uh, if I can just move forward, um, had a revision and, 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 oh, uh, sorry, and is, is now happy. 
Um, so we're running out of time, Sebastian, but over to you to case four. Yeah, perfect. This, this case actually is a very, very interesting one. Uh, we, you will see we, we're going to discuss a lot of... Uh, a lot of questions. That's a tricky one. Uh, this is a female patient, 54 year old. Uh, she's got pain in the right knee um, and she had a total knee replacement. The history is total knee replacement uh, done in, uh, let's say, in another country. And uh, she was okay for a, a couple of weeks. And then you can see the pre op x rays. And then that's the right knee. And you can see the, mm -hmm. the post op x ray. We're not going to comment on, on this one, but you can see that after two months, she started to feel pain on the right knee. When she was white bearing, she had no swelling and she was treated by her doctor with uh, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, no improvement. And she went back to the hospital when she was being operated on in uh, three weeks before, three months before. And you can see the X-ray um, here. So the first question is, again, how do you investigate uh, in this case? And uh, I would uh, ask the question to Philippe. Yes, I, I would do exactly the same that uh, we, we said before. And uh, uh, to, uh, there is a, a loosening of the femoral component. The, the X-ray are very small. I cannot see exactly uh, uh, what about the tibial component, but uh, there is obviously a, a loosening on the femur and uh, some migration of the implant. And uh, so I, I would uh, suspect uh, uh, and try to uh, detect uh, an infection with the aspiration, the blood test and so on. And I will ask also uh, for a, a CT scan in, or, in order to uh, uh, check the, the, the bone loss and uh, if there is some osteolysis uh, uh, somewhere. So, I would do so, and also it will be helpful to control the rotation when we will uh, revise the patient form. Okay, good. So, the, and this is what has been, you know, performed, the blood test, but you can see no ESR, no CRP. So that's the problem, you know, in the initial management of this case, is there was, there's been no aspiration. Uh, the surgeon did the diagnosis of aseptic revision, and uh, we, it didn't get any information from the, the previous surgery. And so what well, has been... Sebastian, Sebastian oh, yeah. can I just... I would say that if you've got a loose implant, that a cemented implant that's loose within a few years of surgery, it's infection until proven otherwise. And, and, and it's, it's not in several years. You see, it's in, several, it's in few months. So that's even worse. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> So I agree, but the, the, the surgeon made the different decision, you know? So it, it, was, it was like, oh, this looks aseptic to me, okay? And he did what, is, what might sound, I hope, crazy to everyone. He did a re-cementing. He get no samples, and uh, you can see the, the post-op X-ray. So again, it's a re-cementation of the femur. I'm not sure about the tibia. And you can see that that was in January, and you can see in March, you know, uh, how now is this uh, ladies? And now in May, you can see it's getting even worse. So you can see the, the, the situation, you can see the scar. Uh, we have a video here. You can see the, I don't know if the video is running. You, you, you can see the, the laxity. She's got some slights, you know, swelling, you know, the scar is okay. She is no, no erythema, no sinus, no joint effusion. 
slightly warm, it's got some pain, range of motion very limited, 45 degree, uh, and you, you can see the various valgus stress. You know the situation, and I would uh, end over to Sam. You know, how do you manage this uh, crazy situation now? So, um, I think this illustrates that complications such as sepsis provoke a grief response in surgeons, and the surgeon in this case never got past denial, unfortunately. Uh, and so we're left to pick up the pieces, it looks like. Uh, so you, you've got um, lots of lucency around it. You, you've got collapse of the femur. You've got bone loss. Uh, lateral femoral condyles uh, collapsed. Uh, the components uh, eroded into the medial condyle as well. Um, I, I've never heard of re-cementation as a procedure, so that's a new one for me. So, so thank you. Um, the, the, the tibia is tilted into various collapse. Um, there, there's a, an effective increase in, in joint space, which has led to that ligamentous laxity. Whether that's truly a, a ligamentous problem or whether it's just that the bone or the implants have collapsed into the bone and therefore increased the space available for movement, I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, you have to go into this, I guess, uh, with, with your eyes open and, and ready to deal with whatever you find. Uh, so uh, the diagnosis is infection. Um, I don't know if we've got any microbiological uh, data back yet. Um, not, not at that stage. Okay. So, so uh, you know, look, um, you need to get your blood test done, your inflammatory markers, aspirate it, find the bug. Uh, and then this is a chronic infection with bone loss. Uh, for me, that's an indication for two-stage revision. Um, I, I can't see a different way of dealing with it. I suppose the question would be perhaps what your spacer looks like in that situation with extensive bone loss and whether you can get an adequately stable uh, joint with uh, an articulating spacer or whether this is one of those rare occasions where you have to put something horrible like a static spacer in um, before you come back to your second stage. Uh, regarding the faculty, when, when do you guys could make the decision of uh, using a static spacer? Mice mentioned it briefly, but uh, what are your indications for a static spacer? Maybe Dan and then Philippe? Yeah, so I tend to use static spacers when uh, there's poor soft tissues. Uh, so maybe in Miles's case where the, he had that big sinus tract that was uh, ellipsed out, uh, I might use a static spacer in that case. Uh, the other cases and ones that are, have had multiple revisions previously and you don't have a lot of bone stock to work with, uh, then we'll put a, we tend to use a, just a big IM nail up the femur and tibia uh, and then a block of cement in between. Uh, but that really lets the soft tissues rest if the soft tissues are uh, somewhat uh, compromised. Yeah, the, the, considering the, the, the spacer, we, we can use a, a mobile spacer mainly when there is some uh, condyle or still some uh, uh, epiphysis. If there is nothing, it's difficult to, to place a, a, a spacer that the shape of a femoral condyle. And also uh, when I use a, a static spacer, I like also to fill the uh, suprapatellar pouch or, or the, the place between the, uh, the patellofemoral joint. And uh, I saw that uh, in a previous uh, slide, uh, Miles, you, you didn't uh, do it. So I, I would do like this. But the, the question also for me is uh, if the, the, the femur is particularly infected and probably also the, the tibia and the, the other uh, bone, the, 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 the idea is uh, what uh, how does this infection extend to the femur? Because in uh, some country, like in Germany, they would be very aggressive with this type of infection with a very large resection and so on. So this is uh, just my, uh, my question. How do, how do we evaluate the, 
the extension of the of the, the infection into the the bone. Okay, so now you have some uh, information regarding uh, blood tests. You can see the the ESR and the CRP. And uh, does it change something? Maybe Nico, you know this case very very well. So. How, how, how do you, this is, you know, you, you have, it's not so high, CRP is not so high, but the, the femur is very loose. And uh, so does it change something? Yeah, indeed, that the CRP, if you look at the CRP, it's in borderline. And, but uh, I forgot to say to, to you that this D-dimer is about uh, 3,400. And um, um, by this, I would like to do aspirations. So then usually, uh, because if it is, if you can see, can you go back two slides before this? and sure. show the clinical sign that, um, yeah, because you see that the joint effusion is none there. So I'm gonna ask the, for the uh, ultrasound. Can you go further? Sure. Yeah, go for it, yeah. But the ultrasound shows only that some inflammation signs and inflame of the sinophil hypertrophy. Problem is that, um, when we uh, uh, aspirate it, it is a dry temp. So maybe it is just to uh, to ask for the panelists if the dry temp in this case some some suggestion they put in some saline on it. Do you suggest it or not? Or what Sam said just now? We got percutaneous open it and do a biopsy. That's two, the two options. Yeah, that, Dan, Sam, what what what? Where would you go? You have a dry knee. Would you? use some saline, you know, irrigation, or would you open it a little bit to get some sign of your samples? So, so, so if I have a, previously, sorry, Dan, as I previously declared, I do sign of your samples, so I'll pass over to Dan. Yeah, so again, if I get a dry tap and I'm very concerned with uh, elevated ESR and CRP, um, then I'll take it to the OR and do intraoperative frozen sections uh, to make a determination that way. And then that, that, that's just, uh, and again, I thank Nico for putting this case together because that was, uh, you know, very appropriate, you know, that because that's something we, we, you, we have the experience in our, you know, our, all of us, you know, that the, the day before the surgery, suddenly the patient has, you know, uh, some fever and, you know, we are in this COVID, you know, environment. So, so you don't know if it's due to the infection or if it's due to something different. So, of course, it, it does compromise everything you've planned. And... Uh, and then the other, uh, another, you know, uh, blood, you know, uh, you know, samples, and and it's very surprisingly, uh, luckily the COVID rapid test was negative, but also the PCR gets, you know, suddenly uh, lower. So that the question is, does it change something in the way you would consider the case? Uh, maybe Nico, you can you can comment on that because that's that's a very special case. Yeah, this is very, very special. But I mean, nowadays, this is a good message to everybody in the world because it's becoming now, now the gate is open. So everybody can, you know, have a, a medical care to, in the United States or Europe or like this, this patient without any information from the previous doctor. It's just like, you know, you go to the jungle and you don't know what to do. And, and since that there is a dry tap, so I uh, proceed for an, uh, a second stage and then I, uh, I, um, yeah, I, I do an refresher uh, uh, second state. Okay. Can you go further, maybe? 
So, so the, 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 the question, you know, uh, I think it, it's interesting, you know, you, you, you feel like it's infected, something happened, and then you, you do again a, a, a new uh, ESR and CRP, you know, uh, test, and then uh, the, the CRP goes a little bit down. Do, do you guys rely on the CRP to make the diagnosis of infection? Or in such case, do you, do you, would, be, you would you be like, no, it doesn't change anything. I, I'm still, you know, doing the, the I'm still going to take care of this patient the way I, I was planning to do it. And it's an in chronic infection and it doesn't really matter if the CRP is going down or not. Two things, I guess, in answer to that, Seb. The, the first is that CRP is useful to diagnose infection, but it's not great at excluding it. So if it's low, well, you know, that's life. But uh, the, the second point is, what's the other diagnosis that's going on here? If it isn't an infection, what's made those implants fall out of the bone? Uh, because I'm not sure there is another uh, diagnosis. Uh, and in the face of that, whatever the CRP is, you're going to continue with your management plan, I think. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense, and and uh, the literature is uh, exactly in that direction, especially in case of you know low-grade infection, and you can have up to 20% of the case with you know ESR and CRP uh, close to normal. So that definitely not, we should not rely only on ESR and CRP to to make the decision, the diagnosis of uh, PGI or not. You know, excellent. Uh, so if we, we, we keep going on that, you know, we consider this case and uh, we rely on the, you know, the international consensus missing criteria. And uh, we, here we, we kind of in between, you know, we are score of three. So it's possibly infected, even if, as you said, for, for all of us, I think the, the infection is really the diagnosis number one. We can see that CRP and ESR are part of the score. Uh, and uh, uh, again, um, you know, there are two, two, you know, the, the international consensus meeting, you know, the definition evolved a little bit, but again, it, it's uh, useful to, to try to make the decision if you're, you know, in, in a situation which is not clear uh, enough. Then we, we have to discuss the management options. We discussed this already uh, with the different previous cases. Uh, you know, there, I, I think here, Sam, even if the patient is fragile, you, you would not you know, you, you, you would not defend that option, I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and then between one stage and two stage, uh, I mean, let's, let's see if someone would go for uh, something different than two stage. Philip, I'm sure no. No, you, you are right. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, I know the answer. Two <laughs> Sam, <stage. laughs> Sam, two stage. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and Nico, uh, you, you, you told us already that two stage was uh, uh, what you, you've been for. So again, you know, we, we, we can go through the, 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 the literature, but we, we said that, you know, uh, they're definitely not indicated. And uh, again, one stage, we, we, we mentioned that, we, you know, here, a lot of uh, things not in favor of, uh, of one stage, uh, especially because here we don't have the, the identification of the organism. So two stage is definitely where we have to go. Um, maybe just show the the video plays here. Yeah. We can see here that the, the, the femur was obviously completely loose. And uh, as we, we mentioned, uh, the joint was dry, but um, what, 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 what is dry, you know, it's not clear, of course. Dan mentioned already in that case to get some fresh frozen biopsy which is uh, trying to, to get some more, uh, you know, uh, um, 
IDs about the, the infection. And then you can see that the, the implants, you know, uh, and again, I would like to thank Nico for sending these uh, intra videos to, to show that, you know, in, in that case, removing the, the implants were not, uh, it's pretty easy. Okay. I have a question, sir, to the yep. panel. Yeah, yeah, Nico, go ahead. Yeah, if you look the at this, the, tibia, the tibia is still very fixed. My question is, can you leave it the tibia like this? Can I have uh, opinion from the uh, panelists, Miles? Uh, well, Nico, um, I, I will admit to leaving the patella in, in two-stage revisions for sepsis, but I would never leave the tibia in. I would definitely remove that tibia as, as part of a two-stage. But, but some um, of the is do this, right, Sam? I've, so, I've seen some literature from the, the from England. Really? Yeah. I, I don't know these people. You have to introduce them to me, Nico. Um, <laughs> we'll have to talk to them. Uh, I, I can't see any reason why you would leave a tibia in in that case. Uh, but um, you know, look, all, all sorts of things happens in the world. In the world, I guess we're here to say what should happen. <laughs> you should take it all out. Um, Sebastian, there've been a couple of questions that have come through about what would the panel advise in terms of antibiotics in the setting where you simply don't get an organism. You've taken it out, you've aspirated it, you've sent multiple samples and they're sterile. Which antibiotics would, would you recommend? And then um, would that help me direct what antibiotics you put in your cement? Or can we, we advise about that? Perhaps I could ask that of uh, Dan. So we routinely will place uh, for our spacers, um, vancomycin and tobramycin in the cement. Uh, at, at fairly high doses. Uh, and when we don't culture a bug, we obviously get our infectious disease colleagues to weigh in, but typically they'll do something like vancomycin and an aminoglycoside as well as rifampin um, to treat these. Okay, so quite a significant morbidity at times with some of those antibiotics, but that's what we have to do. So Sebastian, back to you. Yeah, yeah, I, I keep going. You can see the, the spacer post debridement. So it's an articulated spacer. You can see that uh, uh, Nico managed to, to take care of the bone loss on the femur and on the tibia to, to get it, uh, you know, a pretty stable spacer. Uh, and then a couple of questions, you know, uh, we, we mentioned also uh, some of these, you know, the need for antibiotic holiday, the timing for second stage, um, and maybe uh, also. Um, you know, um, regarding the, uh, yeah, we mentioned that antibiotic earlier. Let's say about the timing of second stage. Let's say, um, Dan, when you, for this case, what's going to be the, the, the key factors who's going to help you to decide when you would perform the second stage in this case? So, again, typically we do six weeks of uh, intravenous antibiotics um, and then give them an antibiotic holiday for anywhere from two to six weeks follow the, the laboratory studies. If the CRP and SED rate are normalized, then we'll go back in and do frozen sections at the time before we put in the uh, definitive implants. Um, the, the challenge is that oftentimes the ESR and the CRP drop, but still stay higher than normal. Uh, and then it may be worth an aspiration uh, to do that uh, prior to going back in. 
But again, we, we make our final uh, decision frequently based on the intraop pros and sections at the time of the second stage. Philippe? Uh, in such a situation, I would do at the beginning exactly like uh, Dan, but after six weeks, if the ESR and the, and the CRP are not uh, normal, I would consider a second look and uh, remove uh, all the spacer and uh, wait for one or two weeks before to uh, re-implant uh, 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 a new uh, revision prosthesis. So it, it happened in uh, only uh, uh, three cases where we did this uh, second look and where we removed the spacer, but we didn't re-implant immediately the uh, prosthesis. And so sometimes it, it gave us, uh, I, I would say, more visibility and uh, uh, probably uh, better biology constant. So it's kind of three-stage revision. Yes, I know we are discussing mainly the one stage today. <laughs> no, no, it's... <laughs> <laughs> but it could happen. Okay. So, uh, yes, the, 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 some questions were also about, you know, should we tailor, you know, the cement we, we put in the, in the spacer uh, to the sensitivity of the infective organism? Uh, maybe I could uh, ask this to Sam, you know, how do you manage the cement you put in your spacer, uh, if you know the organism, of course? Uh, so, uh, we're fortunate enough to have a multidisciplinary team with a, a microbiologist and an infection specialist. Uh, and they'll uh, give me advice on the uh, most appropriate uh, heat stable antibiotic to mix in with the uh, uh, cement and that's really the key thing you can put anything in but of course uh, the, the exothermic reaction of the cement setting can uh, denature some of the antibiotics we use so you have to find a heat stable uh, version that will mix in and not adversely affect the uh, structural strength of the um, cement too much so we know that anything we add is going to make the cement a little bit weaker uh, but then there's a, a sort of uh, risk benefit that you go through and adding two, three, four grams of antibiotic to uh, the mixes of, of uh, cement is not unusual. So can I break in? Sure. Um, so I think the, the concern for us is that oftentimes these are polymicrobial infections, even though you only get one bug. Uh, and in the spacer, we tend to use, again, a combination of both bank and an aminoglycoside. Yeah, yeah, you, 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 you're exactly right. You know, this lady she had several operations, and uh, you, you, the the high infection in this case. Um, so let's let's move forward. You know, uh, regarding the timing of the second stage, uh, do you guys do antibiotics holidays? Uh, Sam, you know, answered this question already. Uh, there's no clear benefit of that. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned this, and then uh, regarding the ESR and the CRP post-op, you can see it remains still um, uh, pretty high, but it definitely goes, you know, uh, down. Um, and then here you have the information regarding the bugs, and uh, you have one bacteria with Staphylococcus hemolyticus. You can see the sensitivity, and also one uh, uh, Candida parapsilosis. Uh, which is sensitive to fluconazole. And um, Nico, I will ask you the, the question uh, about this because again, you, you, you know the case. Is it for you a good, good news or uh, definitely a bad news when you have such, you know, uh, answer from your uh, bacteriologist? Yeah, it's just a good question, Sad. You know, after I, I got this result, then I have to find, 
what is candida parapopsilosis is very rare. So, and also the Staphylococcus hemolyticus. And um, so this is, you know, then I look at the literature shows that a Staph hemolyticus, it is, a, uh, it is some sort of multi-drug resistance. It's quite difficult to treat as well. And um, it's able to, uh, to, to form a biofilm. And uh, also we give a rifampicin for that. And um, yeah, that is just quite interesting because uh, I read that that candidate parapsisilosis is uh, is more com more common in Southeast Asia, while the other one just just now the cloque is more in Europe and in United States. So it is very interesting. Yeah, I I think most of you haven't never heard about this uh, 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 can uh, uh, no candida no. No, maybe yeah. mice. No, <laughs> no, 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 not in a prosthesis. I've heard of the organism, but but I've never seen a candida infection in a prosthesis. So in this case, Nico, how long will you wait uh, before second stage? It's a, it's a good question because if you look at this as a candida as well, so I'm gonna put a bit longer time because I'm worried for the candida. Yeah, yeah, for the fungal. Yeah, this is what I, I, I told you. Yeah, yeah, no, it, no, it's it, very unusual. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not more frequent when there is immunodepression. Sorry? Yeah, the, 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 the higher risk for a, a immunodepressed patient. Because this lady, yeah. she was young and she had no, no specific medical history. So that's uh, pretty no. surprising. Okay, good. I think mice, we, we, we so that, that was a tricky case, but I think it's important to see that, you know, we, we need to stick to the plan, even if some of the information we have can be, you know, sometimes like the, the CRP and ESR are not exactly in line with what we were expecting. We, we, should, we should still consider, you know, uh, doing the thing the, the, the right way when we think about infection. Yeah, uh, can I give information? Yeah, sure. Sure. When I look at the literature about this, uh, this parapleosis, it is, uh, uh, they, they claim that it's a low grade with pain and a swelling. And that is one of the reasons why, you know, if you look at the joints, quite okay. But it's very progressive uh, 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 for the periprosthetic uh, radiolucency. So that's what I read on it. Yeah, very specific. Yeah. So, yeah, so the take home message, you know, is we should do the, the things right. Radical debridement is critical. And um, uh, also, you know, that uh, when you have such an infection, you have to be cautious for a second stage reimplantation. Mice, now it's for you for the, the final case. Okay, uh, thank you, Sebastian. So this is, uh, this is a, a, uh, a patient that I took over the care of, a 78-year-old male, had a primary total knee in 1997, and he was really quite well uh, until 2011. Um, <clears throat> when uh, the knee became, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm keeping jumping over here, quite well until 2011, until June when uh, he had a revision for a loose implant and afterwards he had cellulitis and, and a painful knee and he came to see me, I then took over his care, that was his imaging studies and, uh, sorry, that was his leg and here's his imaging studies. Um, he's having trouble walking, he can't walk uh, unassisted, he's, 
he's got poor range of motion and he's got an elevated CRP of somewhere between 45 and 50. There is, there is imaging studies. Uh, <clears throat> and I think if there's a lesson here, it's that if you leave an infection for a long time, it does eat away at the bone. Um, that's his plain radiographs. Uh, I removed that implant and uh, put in a temporary articulating spacer, as you can see, and then we've got a CT scan. Uh, <clears throat> so this is all about bone loss. Um, and the question I have now, and perhaps I'll start with you, Philippe, um, how would you address this in a for, as a revision situation? Well, the, 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 the first thing, I, I would be concerned by the cellulitis and uh, I would be uh, uh, cautious with that, and I would check if the patient has some uh, uh, anti-inflammatory and things like this, because it's uh, uh, not uh, so frequent to have this kind of uh, cellulitis, and it's very uh, dangerous. This is the first point. And here, when I look at the X-ray, it seems to have a big defect, uh, but this is very small uh, images for me. And uh, he has a big defect on the tibia, huh? that's correct? Or this is a, a... Correct, yes, he has a big postromedial tibial defect. You can also see that he has a postrolateral femoral defect. Um, <clears throat> do you think this is reconstructable? Yes. Or, or, or I, 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 I would say yes, you can uh, always uh, shunt uh, the, the this part at one moment. It's uh, uh, I, I I had the feeling that the the diaphysis is as a very small uh, canal also. And uh, but uh, uh, I, I I think we can uh, feel the at one moment the and 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 use a bypass of the of the defect. It's a. Uh, uh, I don't know exactly for the case because there is not so many images, but I remember some case where I place a, like a, a kind of nail under the, the, the tibia and uh, I, I, I use a kill with a screw. Thanks, Philippe. Um, briefly, um, Sam, uh, would, do you think this is reconstructable? Uh, well, I haven't seen probably quite enough images to, to, to make a definitive uh, decision on that. But it looks to me as though there's probably enough uh, of a circumference on the tibia and certainly on the femur to uh, reconstruct this, yeah. Um, and, and then look, uh, you know, I, I would look to get some sort of fixation probably in the metaphysis um, uh, with uh, something extending down into the diaphysis as well uh, and get your, your two zones of fixation there. But, but I, I think I'd need to see some more imaging than that, to be fair. I'd want to look through the axial slices very carefully. Sam, as, as one of the authors of the original paper on zonal fixation, are we going to get two out of three zones here at all? I'd certainly try, Miles. Otherwise, I'd get a hell of a zone three. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, look, we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll just briefly move forward. Uh, this was an example of a case where I think we needed to have a, um, a custom-built implant, which is what we did. Uh, and that was in uh, 2012. And he was one of these patients with his temporary spacer. He went away on overseas holidays. He cruised around uh, on ships in the Pacific. Uh, it took about 18 months before I finally convinced him to have this reconstruction done. And it's still in there and he's still walking. Mm. 
I, I have a case where I use a little little bit less uh, metal, but the same uh, uh, type of long stem with a screw. And after a few uh, years, some uh, bone reappeared, this uh, uh, part of the metathesis. And uh, it was very strange to see that uh, uh, the natural evolution was not so catastrophic. Okay, um, I think now I can hand back over to you, um, Sebastian. Well, th thanks a lot, Mice. I, I would like to first to thank, you know, uh, the, our faculties have been fantastic for, you know, answering all our questions. Uh, and I, I actually, they've been really, really good. So that, that, that was great. And thanks to Dan, Sam, Philippe and Nico for being so brave. You know, I have no idea of what we're going to ask and uh, uh, being so, so accurate and, you know, uh, and relevant with your answers. I would like also to thank Mice. You know, it's been great to co-chair this uh, session and this webinar with you, Mice. Uh, a lot of fun and also uh, we learned a lot. Uh, I would like to thank, you know, Isakos for the strong support we had to putting this together. Uh, that they've been really, really great for that. And the, the, the technical team has been really good. And I would like also to, to thank all the Neatroplastic Committee members. You know, they have been strong support also for us to putting this together. So knowing that, you know, uh, thank you all. Thank you to all the attendees. They have asked excellent questions. We try to answer to most of them. We, we, we probably had no time to answer to everyone, but we try to answer most of them. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you all for the next uh, Isakos webinar uh, in the near future. Thank you all. Take care and see you very soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.